Our Old Testament reading today is a long one, and we're reading uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 5, 1 to 33. And Moses summoned all Israel, and he said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord your God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but he made it with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. The Lord said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God, he brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that your Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, While the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, 
And we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you. And we will hear and we will do it. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a mind as this always. To fear me and to keep all of my commandments, that it might go well with them and their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents, but you stand here by me, and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them, that they may do them in the land that I am giving them to possess. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left, You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again. God, our Father, as we approach your holy word, we recognize that all of us are dependent upon your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Grant now, O God, that illumination that we need, the light of God applying this word to our hearts, we ask. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts today, O God, may they be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our only rock and our only redeemer. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. In the eighth chapter of uh, the book of 2 Samuel, there is a very striking picture of King David's expanding kingdom. God is with David, and God is giving David victory and striking victory over all of his enemies. We read in chapter 2, sorry, in chapter 8, we read it two times. As the writer aims to give us a very, very deep impression of what's going on in verse 6 of chapter 8, And then again in verse 14 of chapter 8 of 2 Samuel, we read, And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. The kingdom of God's king was expanding, and it was expanding beyond question, and it was expanding in spite of significant opposition. And that expanse had a purpose. It wasn't just to gain territory, But as the kingdom expanded, so did the righteous rule and the righteous governance of the king. We read in in verse 15 of that chapter, David ruled over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. The king's implement of a righteous rule 
is the whole purpose here. He takes a land that is permeated with lawlessness and with crookedness and with injustice, and King David makes it straight, righteous and equitable. And you see, what the Spirit does here in 2 Samuel is he gives us a wonderful picture of the kingdom of Jesus, God's true king, God's best king, God's only king. Jesus has been installed by God as king over the only kingdom that matters, the kingdom that is going to last forever. And God even now is giving Jesus victory. He's giving to his king victory wherever he goes, and that kingdom is expanding steadily and surely in spite of the most serious and significant opposition. And as that kingdom of Jesus expands, just like the type in David depicts, Jesus implements his righteous rule. Jesus begins to reign over his people. He takes what was lawless and he makes it lawful. As a king with all authority and power and glory and rule, he makes a people who now know what is right. And more importantly, Jesus makes a people who are able to delight and to do in what is right. A people who are brought into conformity with God's righteousness, not just legal standing, not just a people who are justified, but a people who in actual experience are being ruled by the word of God. That is, they're being sanctified by his gracious and his indwelling power, and they're brought into conformity with the king's laws, the father's laws. That is the purpose of Jesus as a king. See, the expansion of God's kingdom is nothing other than a people in and through Christ, who are being increasingly ruled by the word of God and by nothing else. My brothers and sisters, today you need to hear that Jesus as king, he desires to rule you. He desires to bring you under the righteous commands of his father in everything so that every part of our lives is obedient to God. This is Romans 8.29. We've been predestined to what? We've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, Christ the obedient Son. And Jesus, as the obedient Son, he knows no other righteousness than the righteousness that he lived, and the righteousness that he loved, and the righteousness that he fulfilled. In Luke 18, you'll remember uh, a rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus and he asks him, what must I do, Jesus, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response is instinctive and it's immediate. And he points this young man to the Ten Commandments. He says, you know the standard. You know the commandments, he says. You see, the Son of God didn't come to earth to make the Ten Commandments passe. He didn't come to poo-poo what God had exalted in a majestic and a fearful display and it declared to be the sum of his righteous character. Rather, Jesus came to underscore the righteousness of his Father and to say, as Paul repeats later on, that the law is holy. And the commandment is holy 
and it's righteous and it's good. Paul, you'll remember, says, I'm carnal. I don't do what I want to do. And the things that I do, I shouldn't do. I'm carnal, Paul says, but the law, it's spiritual. And Paul says, in my inner being, where Christ is now at work in me, they're renewing me, they're reviving me. In that place, Paul says, I delight in the law of God because it's perfect. It's glorious, and it's the pattern of righteousness that Jesus lived and that Jesus loved. It's the law that Jesus boasted of his whole life. And so Paul says, even though in so many ways I fall short in my attempts, even so, Paul says, I serve the law of God with my mind. I serve the law of God from my mind, from that place in my innermost person where Jesus Christ is reforming me and making me come to life in that place by his Holy Spirit, out of sheer unmerited favor and grace, I serve the law of God. That's the hope of glory, my friends. Christ in you at work in you to make you delight in his Father's law, making you to love God more than you love anything else and to see and to savor the glory of God, making you to love your neighbor even as you love yourself. And Christ, Paul says in Colossians 1, he does this with his own energy, which he works powerfully, in all of those who serve him. It's interesting then, isn't it, that in the beginning of Romans 7, Paul says that we're released from the law, no longer to serve under the old written code. And then at the end of chapter 7, Paul says, through Jesus Christ our Lord, I serve the law of God with my mind. Released from the law to serve the law. The old saintly Puritan Samuel Bolton, he says, the law sends us to the gospel that we may, may be justified, and the gospel sends us to the law again to inquire what it is that we should do in being justified. In Jesus, freed from the law's condemnation, freed from the law's curse, made a child of grace, accepted by God and Christ, now made part of his kingdom, ever expanding, ever going forward, we are now brought by Jesus under the rule and the reign of God's law through Jesus Christ. Well, that's a long, a fairly long preamble, but I think it's necessary. In Jesus, brothers and sisters, the Ten Commandments are for you. These are the laws that Jesus lived. These are the laws that Jesus loved. These are the laws that secured a perfect and a, 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 a glorious righteousness that Jesus now shares with us. And there's no other righteousness that Jesus knows. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it well. He says, you will never improve upon the Ten Commandments as a statement of the way in which God would have us live. And the commandments should be our constant meditation. We should long 
just like that psalmist in Psalm 119, to plunge deeper and deeper into their meaning. We should love them as Jesus loved them. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. How sweet, O oh Lord, are your words to my mouth, sweeter than honey. And so over the next few months, we're going to look at the laws of the king in the book of Deuteronomy, a book, by the way, that was especially important to Jesus. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy perhaps more than any other book in the Bible. In fact, when that strong and satanic gale comes against Jesus in the wilderness, it's to Deuteronomy that Jesus sinks his anchor to lay hold of God. Deuteronomy is a beautiful book. It's full of promise. And it's full of gospel. In the book of Exodus, we learn that God rescued a people from slavery in Egypt in a striking and a unilateral, unmitigated display of power. And what the Israelites were powerless to do, God does. God bears his arm. God topples the mighty powers. And God takes out of the world a people for his own possession, to give them a land that is flowing with milk and honey. But now in Deuteronomy, that being done, God begins to teach his people who had long forgotten him over 430 years who he is. Deuteronomy begins to teach them afresh that he's a consuming fire, that he's a jealous God, that he's the only God, that he's unrivaled, unequaled, unseen, that he's a holy God, burning with passion for righteousness, a righteous God, as the psalm says, who loves righteous deeds, and that he's a merciful God. Deuteronomy 4, 31, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you. He will not destroy you. He will not forget the covenant that he made with your fathers. And these newly delivered people, they don't know who God is. And so the Lord now in Deuteronomy needs to teach them his righteous ways. And in verse 6 of chapter 5, just look if you have your Bibles open before you, taking a look at chapter uh, verse 6, chapter 5, before the Ten Commandments are even declared, God prefaces his rules by saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I saved you. I delivered you. When you had forgotten me, I had not forgotten you nor my promises. When you were sunk in Egyptian idolatry, I didn't abandon you, but I pulled you out. I took you. You were slaves and I made you free before I issued a word of command to you. The gospel, brothers and sisters, is here in Deuteronomy, and the relationship between law and gospel is right here in Deuteronomy 5. God's salvation always comes before the law. God had never intended for the law to save us. He had never intended for the law to justify us. The law, as one commentator writes, was for a people already redeemed not designed per se to redeem the people. Salvation comes first in Deuteronomy. Lifestyle comes second. This is St. Paul's point, by the way, in Galatians chapter 3. 
He says it very clearly. Is the law, Paul says, contrary to the gospel? Is it contrary to the gospel of Jesus? And Paul's answer is very definite. Certainly not, he says. Because if a law had been given that could give life, if a law had been given that was meant to give life, that was meant to save, then righteous would have come through the law. But that, Paul says, is not why the law was given. Paul knows very well that the law came after deliverance, that the law came after salvation, and that deliverance came because God had not forgotten the covenant he made with Abraham. Galatians chapter 3. God saves us by himself. God saves us by his covenantal mercies and then positioning us in himself. God teaches his slow ones and his dim-witted ones and his rebellious ones how to know him and how to serve him and what it is that he requires from us. And note also in this verse that God says, I am yours. Before God gives us his command, he says, I am yours. All that I am, all that I have, all of my resources, all of my mercies, all of my strength and my powers, they're yours. I am your God. I have bound myself to you. Thomas Watson, who was perhaps one of the most winsome Puritans to read, he says, this preface to the law is pure gospel. And it's so sweet that we can never suck all the honey out of it. I have saved you, God says. I am yours. And now, God says, with that established, here are my ways. This is who I am. These are the righteous rules in which I delight. And you must learn to delight in them too. And the first of these commandments that we have today is the greatest commandment. In Matthew 22, a lawyer asked Jesus, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus responds again without hesitation, and he quotes Deuteronomy 6. He says, The greatest commandment is this, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your soul, with all of your heart, with all of your might. This is, Jesus says, the great and the first commandment. See, Deuteronomy 6.5, by Jesus' own interpretation, highlights the first commandment as the greatest commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Nothing in your heart or soul shall steal your affections from me. Nothing shall diminish your devotion to me. Nothing shall cool your worship unto me. Nothing shall make you think less of me. I shall fill your vision. I shall burn in your heart. I shall be your longing and your satisfaction. I shall be your chief desire and your chief preoccupation in life. When you wake up, your thoughts shall rise to me. And when you lay down your head at night, my song shall be the song that is burning and churning in your soul. You shall live to me, the Lord says. 
You shall do all things, whether work or rest or play, unto me, because of me and for me. Nothing shall be more important than I, the Lord says. And this is the most important command. And it's the command that gives life and the command that animates all the rest of the commands. Commandments 2 through 10, they're hollow and they're futile without obedience to the first command. Commandments 2 to 10, that is, exist only for the sake of the first command. That's why you can have the greatest moral pagan or the greatest religious moral observer who you know, observes commandments 5 to 10 seemingly perfectly and flawlessly, morally upright. But if they don't obey that first commandment, then it's all vanity and without point altogether. You shall have no other gods before me, says the Lord. Now, you see, we have to understand how confused Israel was. For 430 years, they had lived in a culture that had cherished many gods. There were many deities, many gods to go to, many ways to be helped. Now the Lord, he thunders from Israel with that great Shema, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Israel, the Lord your God, he's one. There's only me. I'm one essentially in my person, but I'm one numerically. There's no other God besides me, he says. There's only me. I am the Lord. Isaiah 45, 5. There's no other besides me, Israel. There is no God. You have learned wrongly these past 400 years. There's no one else. It's just me. There's no one else to help you. There's no one else to cry out to. There is just me. And how slow Israel is to remember this. How slow Israel is to learn this because their history declares their attempts to keep out, keep on believing that there must be other gods. There must be other comforts out there to satisfy me. There must be other ways to be sustained. There must be some other encouragement. There must be some other comfort for my soul. You know, brothers and sisters, the truth is we struggle with the same thing. And if, like Paul, we wrestle to keep these commandments, we wrestle to keep this first commandment most of all. Jesus, he takes this first commandment and he implies it to the most intimate and to the most difficult contexts of life. Jesus says, if you love your father or your mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love your son or your daughter more than me, you are not worthy of me. Listen to what Alistair Begg says on this. He writes, Dare we risk the scorn that may accompany the suggestion that our children may become idols? The family unit as a whole may actually become our focus 
when our focus should be the Lord of the family. There is little doubt, Beg writes, that family ties are the most frequent and the acceptable excuses for disengaging from the gatherings of God's people in worship and from the company of God's people in witness. Do you know why we gather on Sundays? We gather as God's people to witness to the glory of the Lord. So that not only the world knows, but the invisible realms around us know that the people of God are attesting to the worth and the glory of the Lord. But here some families say, well, we're not going to go today. We just need to spend some time together as a family. Or little Henry is a football game this Sunday. We won't be worshiping God. Brothers and sisters, what applies to corporate worship on the Lord's Day applies to so many areas of our lives. Where and when we choose things and we choose people over God. And the Lord warns about this two chapters later in Deuteronomy 8. He says, take care, lest you forget the Lord your God. Lest when you've eaten and you're full, You've got your houses and you're living in them. And when your herds and your flocks, they multiply. And all that you have is multiplied and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Brothers and sisters, where are your hearts today in light of this first command? Do the arithmetic with me for a moment. Add up all the time you spend at the altar of television. Add up all the time you spend on the altar of social media in the marketplace where it's so easy to love the greetings of men. Add up all the time you spend with your friends or with your books or at the mall or on the phone. And then count the time you spend in secret communion with God listening for his voice, crying out to him for help, and cherishing his secret presence. Then do the math. Find out where your heart is. Brothers and sisters, God says today that he will admit no rival. He will not allow you to have other gods. He won't allow you to have other sources of comfort that do not point you back to Him, that don't work to stir up in you a deeper longing for the source. He does allow us graciously to have other loves and other comforts as means to Himself. Pathways back to God. Reminders of God's goodness. But He will not allow you to love these things as a terminus as an end in themselves. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no greater comforts than me. You shall have no greater hopes, no greater joys, no greater longings, no greater stirrings, no greater aims. You shall have nothing that's greater than me. I shall be your all, he says. You're consuming everything. You see, God who knows what is the best thing for us, he gives us this commandment out of sheer love and sheer mercy and sheer grace. The Lord says, there's nothing better for you than to pursue me. There's nothing better for you than to mine for me. 
in my presence. Me, not the things that I give, but me, he says to you. Thomas Watson, he likens the Ten Commandments to mines of gold, and God knows where the mine is. God knows where the gold is, and he gives you the shovel, and the commands are like the command to dig in a mine where gold will be there. Just dig, and it'll be yours. Because I'll give you myself, he says. God's commands, brothers and sisters, are only to make us rich. They're only to give us grace and glory. And the truth is, like Apostle Paul, none of us can do it. None of us can get there. But there's been one who has. One who's done it. One who's lived the law. One who's loved the law. One who's cherished the law. One who knows where it's at and what's most valuable. And he says, just let me come into your life. And I will work my immortal, invisible power in you in such a way that will astonish you if only you'll open yourself to me. Let me live my love for my Father through you. Let me cherish my Father's laws through you. So brothers and sisters, I hope today that the Word of God exposes us. I hope that it drives us to Christ. And if that's you today, then would you please pray together with me. God, our Father, forgive us today where we have loved others and other things more than we have loved you. Forgive us, O Lord, for forgetting you. Forgive us, O Lord, for admitting rivals into our hearts. Write your laws in our hearts, we pray, ever deeper, ever clearer, that we today might love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, all of our minds, all of our strength, by the mighty power of the Lord Jesus Christ working in us. For we pray today for his sake. Amen.